Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. I want to begin today by talking about the concept of time, because it's something the secular world does not understand. And and those of us who were brought up in the secular world without exposure, Torah, have adapted the mindset and the conceptual framework for time the way the secular world sees it, which is totally untrue. The way the secular world looks at time is that time is linear. You know, when I was a kid, I used to watch Star Trek. And the show, of course, based in the future, where the crew on the USS Enterprise would explore all the various areas of the galaxy and the universe. And as they encountered others on other planets, it was the same situations going on today. These planetary, tyrannical leaders that they were always fighting against. Captain Kirk was constantly hooking up with some alien woman. It was mankind acting like mankind is acting today. And there was no advancement towards the discovery and closeness to the creator, to God. And that's how the secular world sees it. The only thing that's changing is the advancement of technology. And what Torah is saying is something totally different. That time is like a spiral moving higher and higher in a circular fashion so that while it's moving higher, each day of the year has a very unique spiritual energy associated with it. And where are we heading to? It's going towards godliness. It's creating a world where the earthly realm begins to mirror the heavenly realm to such a point that the, the veil that conceals the heavenly realm becomes lifted. And that may be taken as me speaking poetically with figurative language, but that's not the case. It's actually literally what Torah is telling us is where mankind is progressing. And an example of this, of how every day, every week has a similar spiritual energy as that week from last year and the year before and all the way back to the beginning of creation is when I first began to study the weekly Parsha and I would read commentary that would help bring out these deep truths and understanding, enlighten me to the truths about the the human condition and the human endeavor and challenges and what we're, we're striving for as individuals. And then like clockwork, I would encounter a situation that very weak, that that Parsha commentary prepared me for. And I want to bring this up because we are, we're about to enter the holiday of Sukkot. And it's a time of year that has a energy to it that really allows us to draw very close to God. I first began to really understand what Sukkot was about back in my old house because my wife and I had the home custom built. We designed everything, every aspect of it, interior decorator, landscaper. Everything was aesthetically perfect. And we thought to ourselves, wow, we're going to retire here. We'll live here forever. This is, this is the dream home. 
And then we began to observe Shabbos and quickly learned that trying to observe Shabbos in a neighborhood and in an area where there are no Torah observant Jews, that it was just not feasible. This is not the environment where Jew is supposed to live and fulfill the Torah and really experience it the way God wants a Jew to experience it. And so we quickly went from thinking, this is the home we're going to retire in. This is where we'll be playing with our grandchildren, all those types of ideas of permanency in that home to realizing this is just a temporary dwelling. So that following Sukkot, I wanted to observe the holiday. So I bought a sukkah and began to really read and understand what this time of year is really about. And in those intermediary days, as I was sitting in the sukkah, I wanted to express to my daughter what it meant to me. And I I wrote her the following, my daughter Elsie's first few steps. I was just a few feet away so she could see that I was there to catch her if needed. But over time, it became necessary to continually take a few steps back as her independence and maturity were contingent on my continual concealment. Now, flashback to after our moment at Mount Sinai, living in the desert in our sukkahs, our sustenance arrived as manna from heaven. And so our dependence on God was abundantly clear. And now move forward in time, 40 years, and we have entered the land of Israel, where we had to work the land for our food, creating a layer of concealment between us and God as as he was now providing to us beneath the veneer of nature to remind us of the true reality of our existence, the one that took place when we were in the wilderness. He instructed us twice daily to say the Shema, which contains the words, then I'll provide the rain for your land in its proper time, the early rains and late rains. It may gather in your grain, your wine, your oil. I'll provide grass in your field for your cattle and you will eat and you will be satisfied. So God hid himself. He added a layer of concealment, but was still providing for us just to to test us and see, would we remember that with that layer of concealment, that he is still the one providing to us just the way when he was dropping manna directly from the heavens. Now, fast forward to the present, and we now live in a very complex and intricate global economy. My process for getting food starts when my employer sends me my compensation in exchange for the services I provide to him via a direct deposit into my bank account, which allows my wife Shauna to take the money to a grocery store where there's a wide variety of food available. And all that food is available as a result of a collaboration of efforts of millions of people from farming to transportation including many individuals who contributed, who are now deceased, who contributed discoveries in the areas of technology, irrigation, oil exploration and refinement, refrigeration and trucking. So now we have all these millions of people working in unison, albeit unknowingly, to provide me the nourishment I need. And so as the technological and economic landscape has advanced in complexity, it has allowed God to continually conceal himself one layer after another layer after another. 
So the question is, is why? Why has he been continually concealing himself through all these developments, through all the discoveries he has allowed us to uncover about his world, to create this very complex economy? And the answer is, is that what our souls are really yearning for is the ability to reciprocate to God the love that he provides to us. And that opportunity is not possible in the heavenly realm. It is in the earthly realm. In this world, we can choose to move towards him by brushing away these layers of concealment that stand between us, thus expressing our love for him. And these layers of concealment take on many other forms, including our businesses, investment portfolios, or maybe the government. And when we put our trust and hope in these intermediaries for God's blessings, for our sustenance, instead of the true source of our vitality, which is God, then we really become no better than the men of yesteryear who were idolaters, who worshiped the sun, moon, and stars. However, when we enter our sukkahs and contemplate our primacy when we sat in our sukkahs in the wilderness, then the illusion of concealment from God is shattered. And we see creation as intended with a complete and undeniable knowing of our connection, our dependence on God. After her first few steps, my daughter embraced me. However, those hugs were because she needed my support to stand. But now, at age 14, when she gives me a hug, they are so much more meaningful and engender much more closeness because those hugs are not motivated out of need, but choice. So likewise, this Sukkot, as we enter our Sukkahs, we too are choosing God's embrace. And the further time we move away from our infancy, when he fed us manna directly from the heavens, then those moments too bring even more closeness. But of course, there's so much more to this holiday. And I wanted to bring on a brilliant Torah scholar, one of my dearest rabbis and teachers and friends, Rabbi Ari Wolby, to talk more about this holiday to make sure we get the most out of it and experience it the way God wants us to experience it with him. So thank you so much, Rabbi, for being here. Thank you so much, Dan. It's such an honor to be here and to be back on your incredible Shema podcast. What an honor. You know, the holiday of Sukkot is also known as the holiday of joy, the festival of joy. It's a time where the Jewish people would celebrate uncontrollably by their unity with the Almighty. It really is an incredible festival. But I want to step back and just put it into perspective in the month that it's in. The month of Tishrei, the month that we're currently in right now, just yesterday we were in synagogue all day praying on Yom Kippur. And now just in three more days, we're going to be sitting in our sukkah. But 11 days ago, we were standing back in synagogue in Rosh Hashanah. You know, Passover is the only holiday in the month of Nisan. Shavuot is the only holiday in the, in the month of Sivan. Lagba Omer is the only holiday in Iyar. And et cetera, et cetera. If you look at the, our calendar, Hanukkah and Kislev, you, you don't have multiple holiday months except for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, back to back to back. And even in between, you have, you have the fast of Gedalia, and you have, it's just like an overabundance of holidays. So I want to demystify that for a second. 
which will give us the great understanding to the awesomeness of the holiday of Sukkot. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, I would like to propose, are really one holiday. They're one long holiday. And let's understand. What is Rosh Hashanah? And we've discussed this greatly throughout all of our programs the entire month preceding Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a time where we make God king of the universe, where we recognize that we've been distracted by so many distractions, whether it be technology, whether it be materialism, whatever it may be, those distractions stop that clarity of that vision that Hashem is the king of the universe. And what we do is we recalibrate on Rosh Hashanah to declare Hashem Hu HaElokim, God is the creator of heaven and earth. He's got it all under control. That's Rosh Hashanah. Then we realize one second, one second. If God is the king of the universe and he sees everything, he, he created the eye that can see. He created the ear that can hear. He created the mouth that can speak. He created all of the senses. He created, and he can't see what we're doing. It's got to be preposterous for someone to think that Hashem creates an eye, but he himself can't see. And not only, not only that, it's even more than that. The Almighty doesn't only see our actions, but he also sees our thoughts. He sees our intentions. And now we realize, uh-oh, that means all along, God has been seeing everything that I was doing. So now I recall all of the events that happened the past year, and I'm like, uh-oh. That means in November last year, God saw that event. And in December, God saw what I did then. And in January, February, God saw what I did. Uh-oh, I better repent. And that is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a time where we can say, you know what? We have Now that we have this vision, this clarity of the Almighty being the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, who controls everything. Like you said, there's a season. There is a power in the season, the season of rebirth of recreation is Rosh Hashanah. But we're trying to show that we're worthy. We're trying to show that God, we're a good investment and we're going to clean up our bills from the last year. We're going to clean up our debt. And that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is when we say we made some mistakes and we're going to ask for forgiveness. And when we ask for forgiveness, the Almighty says, I forgive you. Why? Because you asked. And that's what we were repeating yesterday on Yom Kippur. Vayomer Hashem Salachti Kedvarecha. The Almighty said, I forgive because of your request. You asked, so you got it. And that's why we're so happy. At the end of Yom Kippur, we're dancing. We're dancing Lashana Haba Birushalayim Habnia next year in the rebuilt Jerusalem. What's the joy? Because we're forgiven. How do we know we're forgiven? God says you're forgiven. He says you're forgiven because you asked. It's in the Torah. Moses, after the Jewish people, blew it after Mount Sinai. They bowed down to the, gold, to the golden calf. Idolatry. Imagine, the Almighty himself reveals to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, and not even 40 days later, we can't even hold it together. And we bow down to a golden calf. Moses takes the tablets and breaks them. Shortly after, Moses goes back up the mountain, which is the beginning of the month of El. And the whole time Moses is the mountain, he says, blow that shofar every day to wake up the people not to sin again, not to do stupid things and bow down to other idols. But Moshe, before he can come back down with a new set of tablets, he needs to seek atonement for the Jewish people. 
And that's where this verse comes from, by Yomer Hashem Salachti Kidvarecha. When Moses says, the Jewish people are sorry, look at them, they've changed, they're new people. And that's why forever, this day, the day of Yom Kippur, is the day of atonement. And God says, you asked, I answered. And I answer with total forgiveness. Okay, so now where does Sukkot come in? The holiday of Sukkot comes in four days later. Just enough time to build a Sukkot, to get a Lulav, to get an Etrog, to get a, a Hadas and Arava, you know, the, the Myrtle and, the, and, and all of these, these species together. So we have four days to get it all together. And then what do we do? We go into our Sukkah. Well, now it makes a lot of sense. Because why did we make mistakes to begin with to not remember that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that God is the king of the universe. Because we got so busy in our comforts, in our materialism, in our habits. That's our trap. And then we have to go to Yom Kippur and we say, Hashem, please forgive us. So do you know the way we actually start our year anew? By leaving our homes. We leave our place of stability. We leave our place of habit. We leave our place of comfort and materialism. And we say, Hashem, do you want to know how serious we are about that atonement that we ask for forgiveness? You want to know how serious we are? Look, we're going to leave our homes. We're going to leave the place of our trappings. We're going to leave the environment that pulled us down, the comfort that everything is working exactly the way I want. And I ask Alexa to do this and I ask Google to do that and I ask Siri to do this. I have everything worked out. And we live in this life of comfort and luxury. And we say, we recognize that that's our falling. Our, that's our pitfall. You know what we're going to do first thing after Yom Kippur? We're going to demonstrate with our bodies that we're getting out of habit. We're going to break those habits. We're going to leave our home for seven days. We're going to eat, sleep, drink in our sukkah, in our temporary dwelling as if it were permanent because what we're demonstrating is we are not people who are locked anymore in our materialistic uh, trappings we are ready to let go we are new people and only after seven days of being in our sukkah then we say okay this was enough time to demonstrate a solid return to normalcy we recognize that the jewish people were in a desert they realized that they were surrounded by clouds of glory all around them, six directions, to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west. And then above them, they had a cloud so that they don't get sunburnt in the desert. Beneath them, they had a cloud so that the snakes and scorpions don't, don't bite them and eat them and poison them. And they got the mana every day. That's what we do when we go outside. In Houston, hopefully it's going to be pleasant weather. But in other places, it's starting to get very chilly. And you know what specifically, our sages tell us specifically during this time of the year is when we experience Sukkot to show we're not going to run back to our comforts. We're not going to run back to our homes because it's too cold. We're going to stay in our Sukkah. We're going to demonstrate with action, not with words. We're going to demonstrate with action that we mean change. And that's why Sukkot is such a beautiful connection to Yom Kippur and to Rosh Hashanah as one big festival of change. We're demonstrating it in its fullest. What comes at the end of, of Sukkot? Simchat Torah. Now that we've changed our whole perspective, now that we've left our home, we've demonstrated how materialism doesn't take the central role of our lives, now what do we do? When we move back into our homes, that very same day, you know what we do? We take a Torah 
and we dance around the Torah. We say, this is the center of our life. No longer our materialism, no longer our, our luxuries. This, the Torah, is the center of our lives. And we dance around the Torah. We celebrate that this is re-engineered who we are. We've become from people who prior to Rosh Hashanah didn't, maybe didn't have a clarity of that the Almighty is the center of the universe. We've put other things. We can put politics. We can put our cars, our homes, our food. People have idolatry up to, up to, their, up to their necks, different forms of idolatry. You know, I, I've, I've said this numerous times that you know what the greatest idolatry that people can, modern day idolatry that people can relate to? It's Harley Davidson. There's nobody who just is a fan of Harley-Davidson. You're either all in or you're out. That means they get the tattoos, they get the jackets, they get the bumper stickers, they get the even the F-150 uh, uh, Ford truck, they get the Harley-Davidson edition. I mean, they, they've got it. They, they get the Harley-Davidson magazine. They have to have the Harley-Davidson keychain. They have to have everything is Harley-Davidson because you're all in. It's, an, it's a religion. It's an idolatry. It completely takes over the people. But we have many other types of education is a great thing, but it can become career, can become an idolatry. Money, money is very important. People need to live. People need to, to, to support themselves and, and provide for their families. But many times we see in our generation, money becomes an idolatry. We have all of these idolatries. Rosh Hashanah is a time where we say, you know what? We've messed up a little. It's time to recalibrate. We establish Hashem's the king of the universe. We ask for forgiveness, and then we demonstrate that change with going into our sukkah. We leave our homes. We leave our, our comfortable trappings, and now we go to our sukkah. We can have a, some mosquitoes. We can have some flies. It's not always ideal. Sometimes it's a little hot from the sun in Houston. Sometimes it's a little cold when you're in other places of the world, but we're showing that we're ready and committed. And then... We go straight into Simchat Torah and we dance around the Torah. We're establishing, we're back in our homes. Before going back into our homes, getting back into our regular routine, we establish that the Torah is the center of our world. But the idea here is that the, the more time you're spending in the sukkah, the more time you're demonstrating that you're changing yourself, whether you're awake, sleeping, all that time is considered a mitzvah because it's time you're dedicating to God to demonstrate that you are changing and you're making him your central focus. Correct. We're not trying to be seasonally changing. We're trying to be completely changing. It's a complete change. It's the way we sleep. It's the way we eat. It's the way we drink. We become new people. You know, there's some incredible components to Sukkot, is the offerings that were brought every day in the temple. Do you know that there was an offering that was brought for all 70 nations? We care about the other nations. For what, what offering are we bringing for the other nations? For all of their sins. Why is that our problem? We're the Jewish people. We're not the Hindus. And we're not, the, uh, you know, we're not, we're not all, all the other nations. What do we care about them? Because as Jews, we feel an obligation and a responsibility that if we aren't an example for the nations, that's why they can sin. That's why they make mistakes. It's because we are not fulfilling our responsibility. Again, leading us back to that same Rosh Hashanah idea that if we had recognized that Hashem was the master of the universe, we would never have le left our responsibility of being Jews and in a leadership position as being an example. Just today, I was uh, shopping, preparing for Sukkot, and a woman, as I walked into the big Costco, 
she looks at me and she motions at my yarmulke. So I'm like, yeah, I, I motion back. Yeah, thank, thumbs up. Thank you so much. And several times as I was going, she worked at the store. She, so as I was walking around, she was, you know, huddling around me. And when I was finally checking out, she says to me, so I get that what you're wearing on your head is the kippah. It's the yarmulke. She says, but what's the strings on the side of your, of your, you know? So I said, those are tzitzit. She says, oh, that's what goes on the talit. I'm like, that's correct. She says, I want you to know, I love the Jews. And I pray for the Jews. He says, y'all are the leaders of the world. Y'all are the example for the world. You guys follow the Bible. You guys are God's people. You're the chosen nation. And sometimes Jews feel so uncomfortable about that. Jews feel like, oh, no, we're all equal. We're not equal. Because you're taking on responsibility. You're, you're obligated. Saying we're all equal means I'm not responsible anymore. I'm not more responsible than you. You are more responsible. And feel proud about it. That Sukkot is part of that time where we say, we're not going to be shy. We're not going to hide our sukkah. We're going to put it on our driveways. We're going to put them in front of our house and back of our house. Wherever it is, we're not going to hide our Judaism. We're going to be very proud to be Jews. Another aspect of it is we take the lulav, the etrog, the hadas, and the aravad. We take the four species. It's an amazing time for us to also feel an obligation to one another. Our sages tell us that the four species identify the four different types of Jews. One smells good, but doesn't taste good. One tastes good, but doesn't smell good. One tastes good and smells good. One doesn't taste good or smell good. And our sages tell us that he's identifying four different categories of Jews. But you know what? It doesn't make any difference on Sukkot. On Sukkot, we unite them all together. And we say, as one nation, as one soul, we're recognizing that the Almighty is in all directions. And that's why we shake the lulav to all of those six directions. We shake it to the north, to east, south, west, up, above us, and beneath us. We're showing that we recognize as a people that in all of the directions, Hashem is everywhere. Again, keeping with that same theme. We want to lock it in. You know, it's interesting, at the end of the Yom Kippur service yesterday, we ended with a remarkable prayer. We said the Shema one time. We said the Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed three times. And then we said Hashem Hu Alakim, Hashem is our God, Hashem, creator of heaven and earth. We said that seven times. Why seven? Because seven locks it in. We want to bring it into our consciousness. We want to bring it into our existence. We want to lock it in the whole holiday of, of Sukkot is around the number seven. It's an amazing thing. You ever realize that a box has six sides, right? It has the four sides and then the top and the bottom, but there's one more side, which is the inside. It, all six close off something that's inside. It's like the six days of the week that encapsule the Shabbos. It's interesting that the dice, if you ever spin a dice, you'll notice if you pay attention that if you take the opposite sides of any dice, it'll always equal seven. You have the six is on one side, the one is on the other side. The five is on one side, the two is on the other side. The three is on one side, the four is on the other side. Did you notice that? The number seven. Whoever put, it to, whoever put that dice together knew something. But that's the truth. We see, a, we see a, a square as being a complete seven, not six, because it encapsulates something. And those are the six days, the seven days of, of Sukkot. In Israel, it's six days, but it, it, it's, it, the six makes a seven. Shmini Atzeret, 
and Simchat Torah. So the last day of Sukkot is Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah is a very special day because that sort of closes, it's the, the end of this whole festival of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Sukkot ends with, with Hoshana Rabbah. Now, what happens is, is that, again, on Rosh Hashanah, this, in my example, it's a modern day example, I know, but imagine you're about to write a letter to a friend or if a court is giving a judgment. So first they write the decree. That's on Rosh Hashanah. But then you seal the envelope, and that's Yom Kippur. That's the sealing of the judgment. But when do you actually drop it in the mail? Our sages tell us, the Hasidic masters tell us, Hoshana Rabbah is that day. The last day of Sukkot is the day it gets dropped in the mail. Till it gets dropped in the mail, you can still change the decree. Once it's dropped in the mail unless it's a ballot for voting that gets thrown on the side of the Pennsylvania highway. The decree is not done till it gets mailed. And that's Hoshana Rabbah, which is why many have a custom to learn the whole night of Hoshana Rabbah, because that's the last chance we have. It's the sort of the end cap of the entire holiday season. But wait, we still have another holiday, right? It's Shemini Atzerah and Simchat Torah. In Israel, it's just one day. In the diaspora, it's two days separated. And our sages tell us is that God said, what's happening here? My children are going to leave me now? After all of this festival, my children are just going to leave? God says, no, I want more. I want, a, I want another holiday. And that's the holiday of Shemini God says, I want last licks. I want, I want another celebration. I want another holiday. And that we do by refocusing again. We're moving into our house now. We leave the sukkah. But you know what we don't do? We don't go back to our norms. We recognize that we need to reprioritize. As we're moving into our home, we dance around the Torah. We make the Torah the center of our life. I've read that during the times of the temple that not only would we do sacrifices for financial or material blessings for the other nations, but they could come enjoy in that festival with us and they can make the, bring their sacrifices to the temple and that they would enjoy Sukkot with us, but that that last day was where it was just God and the Jews, meaning everyone else is leaving, and it was sort of like the, the after-party event where we got to stick around for an, another day. That's a beautiful idea, and that's, it, it's true. I mean, if we look in the Torah, the Torah tells us about this unbelievable time where the Jewish people would all come to Jerusalem to be at the temple. The Torah commands us that during the three festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, the Jewish people should make something called Aliyah Regal, which is going up to Jerusalem. People would come up to Jerusalem and they'd bring their offerings and they'd bring their gifts. and they'd bring. This was an amazing boom for Jerusalem, for the homeland of the temple, of the Jewish people. And obviously, since we don't have a temple today yet, so there aren't the offerings and the services of the Kohanim, and the singing of the Levites, the power and the potential to connect and to reach really, really high levels is always there. It's in the season, like you said earlier so beautifully in the introduction, that that season of connection, that season is embedded into that time. Now, our sages tell us another thing, that when we are sitting in a sukkah, what we're doing is, is we're being encircled by the Almighty, we're giving ourselves up to the Almighty out in the nature. We're out of our homes. 
we can feel a little bit vulnerable. God says, I'm here to protect you. Just like I protected you back in the desert. In Sukkot, I'm going to protect you in your sukkah, here in Houston, Texas, or wherever it may be. The Almighty is protecting us. We have to recognize and feel that connection, that we're never alone, even when we're out of our primary residence, when we're out of our elements. Hashem is where, wherever we go, the Almighty is there. You know, in my last home, we had a big fenced-in backyard, so we had enough open space that we could put the sukkah out in the backyard. It was very uh, isolated. And of course, here, the, there's a lot of trees in the backyard. It's just not kosher to put it in the backyard with all the, the, the foliage that overhangs. So we're putting it in the driveway. Everyone says that's what everyone does. And my first thought was like sleeping in a sukkah right out my driveway where people walking by. You know, I don't know everyone that lives around here. It seems very unsafe. But to me, after what you just said, it is the ultimate sign of trust. The, the analogy I used for the essay I wrote that I heard was, it's like a way for Hashem, a way for God to hug you in this world when you go in there. So I shouldn't be concerned if I sleep in my sukkah out in the driveway. I won't worry about that. You know, you're in Texas. You can sleep with your shotgun under your pillow just in case. No. But the, in, in, in all honesty, that's the idea. The idea is to feel that connection with the Almighty is to feel he is hugging us, which is why another analogy I remember now, thank you for mentioning that, is that for a sukkah to be kosher, it needs to have two and a half walls. It means the majority of the third wall. Our sages tell us that that's like an arm. If you look at an arm from the shoulder to the elbow, the elbow to the wrist is two full walls. And then you have the palm and the fingers which is the third wall, and the, is the majority of the third wall. And that's God's embrace. God is hugging us. He's telling us, look, we're in this together. I love you. I want you close to me. I'm watching over you. I'm protecting you. And that's God's hug that he gives us. It's such an incredible idea to feel that connection and not to be worried and not to, not to be, you know, yes, we're living in a world that, you know, the nations of the world don't exactly love us. That hasn't changed in 3,300 years since the receiving of the Torah. Not a once has it changed. There will always be an Esav, and we have to stand there as a Yaakov. We have to be proud to be Jews, to be representing the Almighty in this world, and to do it with dignity and to do it with responsibility, not to hide from it. It's when we hide that that hate grows. When, we're, when we do it properly and we, we feel the responsibility and not shying away from it. That's when we shine. That makes sense. So talk a little bit about for anyone who is new, who wants to begin to, who wants to experience this holiday. So, so you mentioned minimum two and a half sides. There has to be, the roof has to be made of, of something natural, something that grows from the ground, but isn't attached to the ground. Okay, so the basic idea is is that it should be more shade than sun coming in from, from, from the top. It's called schach, which is, you know, the, the idea of, is that the name sukkah comes from the word schach, which means the covering. You can't use a tarp on top. You can't use, it's got to be something which is natural, that grows from the ground, but isn't attached to the ground. And that brings shade. Again, you don't want to suffer there. You don't want to get sunburned in your sukkah. God doesn't want you to suffer there. Even if it'll be a little hot, if you have 
good enough shade, it should be an enjoyable experience, hopefully. Sometimes it gets really, really hot in Houston on Sukkot, and, you know, it's like any air conditioning won't help when you're outside. But notwithstanding that, the Almighty doesn't want us to suffer, which is why our sages also tell us that mitzvah potter, if someone is feeling pain by being in the sukkah, it's not comfortable, it's not pleasant, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in pain from this, it's raining, or, you know, it's ruining my food, and it's like, so then it is, when it becomes in a, a disappointment for someone to be in the sukkah, then they're allowed to go into their home. God doesn't want us to suffer. But there are those who eat, even then say, you know what, I'm going to weather it out because this is such a great mitzvah. This shows my dedication even when I'm uncomfortable. And therefore, if it's raining, I'm still going to eat out in the rain. And particularly the first night to make sure to at least make kiddush in the sukkah, even if it's raining. Because that the first, the first day is the greatest obligation of the entire holiday. That's great to know. I love it when you can be productive by doing nothing but sitting. That's right. So if you just take your, if you're going to be on your computer during the intermediary days, which is, you know, which you're allowed to do whatever is necessary. But if a person, you know, our sages tell us, very, very interesting. So let's step back. You're right. Let's give a practical here. Okay. The holiday of Sukkot is like any other holiday. It's like any other Shabbat where we're not allowed to do labor of creative labor. Right? It's one of the mistakes that people make about understanding Shabbat. Oh, you're not allowed to work on Shabbat. That's not true. I work very hard on Shabbat. I don't do any creative labor on Shabbat. The difference. So here you're sitting by a big, beautiful desk, almost like the desk in the Oval Office. And it's a big desk, and to move this desk would be a lot of work, right? But our sages tell us, and the Torah tells us, it's not a problem to move this desk from one room to another room. Even though it's work on Shabbat, it would not be a problem. However, flicking on a light switch would be a prohibition. That's not work. Well, moving a desk is not creative labor. Flicking on a light switch is. And that's why people make a huge mistake when they use the word work that is prohibited on Shabbat. That's not true. Same thing with holidays. Creative labor is what's prohibited on the holiday, except when it comes to food. You're allowed to prepare food on Yom Tif, not on Shabbos. So if Shabbos and Yom Tif, like this year, they coincide, right? So the first day of Yom Tif, of a holiday of Sukkot, will also be on Shabbat. Doesn't, you can never override Shabbat. Shabbat always takes precedence. So Shabbat, the laws of Shabbat apply even if it's a holiday. So you cannot prepare. But Saturday night, after stars come out, it already is the second day of holiday. And then any preparation that's necessary food-wise can be done, not starting a new flame. You cannot start a new flame. You can't turn on the oven, but you can leave the oven on and put food that will be cooked on the second day. Can you take a flame already burning from a candle you lit before Shabbos, invite your rabbi over, take that flame, and then light up a cigar for both of you, provide a nice scotch, and sit in the sukkah and have a cigar and scotch? Absolutely. All right, fantastic. It's a date. I'm looking forward. <laughs> um, and, but in those intermediary days, th- there is no restriction on livelihood or... Right. So our sages tell us there is no blessing from profits that are made from work on the intermediary days. There, there's just no blessing to it. You can make oodles of money on 
of the intermediary days, and then you have a water pipe burst, then you have a flat tire, and you have all of these things that take away those profits. So maintaining the work that's necessary, you're allowed to maintain. It's best to avoid creating new business, trying to make new sales, trying to, to be proactive in the work that's necessary. It's really a holiday. Our sages say as much as possible to avoid proactively being involved in business. Okay, so I'll keep the service calls, inner office calls that they need me, but any sales calls, I'll say schedule that off to the next week. Schedule it off. I'll tell you, there's an amazing store in New York City called B&H Photo. For those of you who don't know, or the listeners who don't know, B&H Photo is the largest photography store in the world. And believe it or not, it's owned by two Shomer Shabbos Torah observant Jews. And B&H stands for Baruch Hashem. And it's an entire city block in New York City. And that place is closed from the beginning of the holiday till the end of the holiday. And it doesn't make a difference who you are or what you are. You cannot buy an item, not from their website and not from their store, the entire holiday of Sukkot or Passover or Shabbat. As soon as sundown hits, their website goes into, it says you can browse, but you can't purchase. It's an amazing thing. And you think, wow, that's a seventh of the business that they're losing. No, that's exactly the opposite. Kihi mikor habrocha. Shabbos is the source of all the blessing. Guess what? They look, we look at it as a totally different perspective. We get an extra day off. Right. And the same goes for Sukkot because that is your time to remember that everything comes from God. Passover is the same, by the way. Passover is the same idea, the same, the intermediary days, while we could drive during those intermediary days if they're not Shabbat. So this year it's going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I believe, and then Friday begins the second days, uh, Friday night, so which will be Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. During all of those intermediary days, even though it's Sukkot and we eat in the Sukkah and we try to sleep in the Sukkah and we try to do all of whatever it is that we do in the Sukkah, still we're allowed to drive and do the things that are necessary. We can cook and turn on lights and off lights during those intermediary days, like an ordinary day. We try to keep it special. We try to continue to wear uh, holiday and Shabbat clothes and just keep it keep the day days special. Halacha tells us to have a festive meal each day, just like you do on a Shabbat. We have a special meal. So too during to have you know dinner should be a wash on bread and eat a full meal. All these holidays, Shabbos, Sukkot, whenever it's uh, something God created to draw close to him, he's always telling us, buy amazing food, it's on me, I'll reimburse you for any expense. That's right. You know, I have a very dear friend of mine in Dallas, Texas, and he, every time we meet, he prepares food, and a lot of food. And I, I once asked him, I said, you know, we can just meet without food. He says, no, 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 no. God teaches us that we connect most through food, which is why every festival has food involved with it. Because food is a time. If you want to date, it's very effective over food. You want to have a business meeting, it's effective over food. Food brings out discussion, conversation, feelings, happiness, joy, singing. So much comes out of eating and enjoying each other's company. You're not rushing anywhere. Just enjoy, enjoy each other's company. And that's part of the gift of these holidays that we have is to, you know, it's Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. And yet we sit and we eat. 
I mean, who before standing in front of a judge is, you know, let me just, uh, you know, eat with my family, dip the apple in the honey, and we'll eat from the fish, and we we'll have this and that and chicken and meat and all these. Aren't we standing in judgment? Yeah, it's a very different kind of judgment. It's a judgment where the judge loves us. And he wants our, our relationship. And this is part of it. We celebrate and we sing and we dance on Rosh Hashanah. Right? Yom Kippur, we stay away from that. Right? We don't eat. We don't drink. And that's because we're asking for atonement. We get to levels of angels, which was spoken about in the previous podcast, uh, the incredible podcast on Yom Kippur. On Sukkot is a time where we go all out. We go all out in our feeling that closeness and that relationship with Hashem. Fantastic. Thank you, Rabbi, for providing a lot more insight on this uh, very special holiday. I would encourage everyone listening, any of you who have never experienced it, to get a sukkah like I did. I bought a kit. You know, they got it to me pretty quickly in the middle. I was able to set up and enjoy it, but it's, it's an amazing experience. It's an amazing mitzvah. It's an amazing action you can take to declare that God is the king, you are their subject, and you want nothing more to be close to him as he wants to be close to you. Anything else you want to add, Rabbi? Just enjoy the festival that Hashem gave us. He gave it to us to enjoy. God wants, it's the holiday of joy. It's called Chag Simchatenu. It's a festival of joy. Just be happy. Recognize that we are in Hashem's embrace every day. Awesome. And it's also good that we know, because I was talking to someone this morning, and we're both sharing how, like, in the uh, the late stages of Yom Kippur, getting a little lightheaded after standing all day with no food or water. Like, as soon as we got home and had a little food, we were like, oh, I forgot to do Teshuvah for that. But we have, a, we have another week to go, right? We have another week to go of things that we still want to clear off the table. That's right. This time is the time to demonstrate in action that we were serious about our atonement and our forgiveness that we asked for on Yom Kippur. We're putting it into action. So this is a time for action, action, action. Let's get it done. Let's show that this is the new person. This is the new Arya Wolby. This is the new Dan Coleman. This is the new me that I said I was going to be on Yom Kippur. Well, I really like the, uh, the old Rabbi Ari, but I'm sure the new one will be even better. Rabbi, thank you so much for your time, for coming on the show, educating us as always, and providing all your amazing insights. I look forward to having you on again. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.